Well, today we're going to be taking a look at uh, Acts chapter 8, and as you will recall, it has been some time since we have been in the book of Acts. We began a series in Acts uh, sometime in the spring, I believe. Uh, Then we took a break to devote several Sundays to a discussion of the elements or the issues that were at play during the time of the Reformation um, in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Um, And now, well, and then last week we had a Thanksgiving sermon, but today we return to our series on the book of Acts. And so we are in Acts chapter 8, and uh, we are going to be taking a look at verses 14 through 25. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 25. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter said to them, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the bond of gall, the gall of bitterness. I'm sorry, you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, because it has been some time since we have been in the book of Acts, I think it might be helpful just briefly um, survey the ground that we have covered so far. We have mentioned that the book of Acts is one of two books written by a man by the name of Luke, Um, The other, of course, is the gospel that bears his name. And the two books together really should be considered to be volumes one and two of a single literary work. And uh, the first, of course, the gospel recounts the life of Jesus from his birth until the time of his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And then the book of Acts picks up where the gospel of Luke drops off and follows the progress of the gospel for about its first 30 years, from A.D. 30 until about the year A.D. 60. And so it's, it's covering the progress of the gospel, and it's doing so primarily through the ministries of two men. Uh, first of Peter, chapters 1 through 12, follows the ministry of Peter, and then chapters 13 through 28, for the most part, follow uh, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We've also seen that Jesus himself provides us with an overview of the progress of the gospel in geographical terms. In chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus says to the twelve, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this provides not only a foreview or a foreglimpse of the progress of the gospel as it actually takes place in history, but also it provides us with somewhat of an outline for the book of Acts itself. And so we have seen that the ministry of the apostles is recounted first in the city of Jerusalem, even as Jesus said in chapters 1 through 7, then in Judea and Samaria. Judea was the larger region in which the city of Jerusalem was located, Samaria lying to the north of of Judea. 
Um, and that ministry is very briefly recounted in chapters 8 and 9. And then to the ends of the earth in chapters 10 through 28. And so we see this outline of the book of Acts. We see the progress of the gospel in geographical terms. But this geographical progression roughly corresponds to what we might call an ethnic progression of the gospel as well. That is, we see first Jews, then half-Jews, and then non-Jews receive the gospel. Now, of course, we understand who the Jews are. They're the descendants of Abraham. They're the covenanted people, the chosen people of God. But who are the half-Jews that we're referring to? Well, they are the Samaritans. You remember that we talked about the origin of the Samaritans as a people. Several centuries before the time of Christ, when Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom containing 12 tribes and the southern kingdom containing two tribes, and the northern kingdom never had a faithful king at all. And God eventually brought judgment upon them in the form of an invasion from the Assyrians, and uh, Israel was defeated, and many of the people were carried away into exile. And the Assyrians brought other peoples whom they had conquered and resettled them into the land of Israel in the north. This was kind of their state policy to prevent it, uh, to, to make it difficult for any of the conquered peoples to mount a revolt, to resettle them in unfamiliar territory and to completely mix up and disorient them, geographically speaking. Well, those foreigners who were resettled into the land of Israel over time intermingled in marriage with the Jews who remained there. And their descendants came to be called the Samaritans. And they were, because they were considered to be half-Jews, they were not looked upon with great favor by those who were full Jews. And not only because of the ethnic mixing, but also because of the religious mixing. Because they took some elements of their pagan past and combined it with elements of the religion revealed by the Lord in the Old Testament. They developed or they built a rival temple. They had a rival priesthood and they had a suitably edited Torah, which is known today as the Samaritan Pentateuch. Um, it's, it made them made it look like the Samaritans were the favored people of God. They were the chosen ones and that it was in Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem where people ought to worship. And so these were the half Jews so the gospel makes its progress from Jew to half-Jew, and then finally to non-Jews. And the non-Jews, of course, are Gentiles. And that includes, as far as I know, everyone in this room. We are not ethnically related to the Jewish people. But because of the grace of Jesus Christ, the salvation which God brought to the world through Israel not only comes to Israel, but through Israel to all the ends of the earth. And this is the movement that we find throughout the book of Acts. So we have both the geographical outline, we also have this ethnic outline as well. Uh, but we can see this progression in another way as we look at the book of Acts. Um, where does the book begin? What, what city? We've already mentioned it. Jerusalem. And where does the book end? You know? It's in Rome. Right? We have the capital of the Jewish people, Jerusalem. That's where the story begins. That's where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the apostles. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. He begins there. But then we get to the end of the book and we find the apostle Paul in Rome. From the capital of the Jewish people to the capital of the Gentile world. And so in a very sweep, uh, sweeping movement, we find the progress of the gospel just in those two facts. 
But there are a number of other subdivisions that we could note also in these groups, this ethnic grouping of people that we've mentioned here, and I think that this also is quite fascinating. Among the Jews, we can identify those who were called Hebrews. Those who were called Hebrews. Uh, These were Jews who shunned Greco-Roman culture, and they attempted to consistently maintain their Hebrew heritage and identity. They dressed like a Hebrew, they spoke Well, in that day it wasn't called Hebrew, it was Aramaic. It was the Hebrew of their day, quite different from the Hebrew in the days of the prophets. But they thought of themselves as being true, authentic, faithful Jews because they maintained not only the laws of Moses, but also their Hebrew heritage and culture and shunned Greco-Roman culture. And then among the Jews, there were also those called the Hellenists. Uh, They were um, those who were Greek Uh, In culture, they spoke the Greek language, they dressed like Greeks, they ate Greek food, and they did uh, a lot of things that to a Hebraic Jew would be thought of as being compromising and would look foreign and was oftentimes, were oftentimes looked down upon. Now, we're first introduced to them in chapter six, you recall, when there was a dispute about uh, the serving of the widows in the church. It says that there was a complaint among the Hellenists against the Hebrews concerning the overlooking of widows and the daily ministration of food. And so there were uh, seven men, all of them Hellenists, who were appointed to oversee the distribution of the food to the Hebrews, or to, to the widows in the church. So even among the Jews, we find subcategories. In fact, there was a great controversy in, the, in these centuries about who represented true Israel. Who was the true Israel? Pharisees would make the claim for themselves. They tended to be the, the Hebrews. Um, Sadducees might make the claim for themselves, the Essenes and various other subgroupings. But these are two main ones, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And even among the half-Jews, we find some subdivisions. Um, There were those that we've referred to as Samaritans. Um, They were the half-Jews that were intermingled uh, in their ancestry. But then also another subcategory of half-Jews would be proselytes. Uh, These were Gentiles by birth, and then they became Jews by religion, that is, they were converted. So ethnically, they have no connection to Israel, but religiously, they do. See, it's one step further removed. At least with the Samaritans, there was some blood in their ancestry, uh, Jewish blood, that is. And we are introduced later in chapter 8 to um, a proselyte who first comes to the faith, the Ethiopian eunuch in in, uh, verses 26 through 40. And then among the non-Jews, we can distinguish two groups as well. The first of these were called God-fearers. We find this term a number of times in the book of Acts. Those who fear, you you, uh, sons of Israel and those of you who fear God. Those of you who fear God were the God-fearers. They were Gentiles who came to believe in the God of Abraham, but they had not yet become full Jews. They had not been circumcised, they had not adopted the laws of Moses, but they confessed faith in the God of Israel. So uh, there were the God-fearers. And the first Gentiles that we see coming to faith in Jesus Christ is a God-fearer, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Okay, And then there are the idolaters. These are the rank pagans, if you will. These are the ones who had no connection either ethnically or religiously to Israel. They're not, they can't trace their ancestry back to Abraham, and they are still um, committed to their 
pagan ways, but then they come to hear the gospel and they believe and they forsake their idolatry. So we see that there is this movement, again, throughout the book of Acts, um, which is in general from those whose origin is most ethnically, religiously, and culturally close to the center of Judaism to those who are less so. Now, this isn't to say that at any given point in history there weren't you know, Hellenists before they're first mentioned, um, nor faithful Hebraic Jews who later on became Christians, but this is the general pattern, the general movement of the gospel that Luke uh, shares with us in the book of Acts. All right, now the first part of chapter 8 tells us of the circumstances of how the Samaritans uh, came to receive the gospel in the first place. You recall that there was a man by the name of Philip. He was one of the seven that was chosen to uh, serve the widows of the church. And because of the persecution that was uh, raised in the city of Jerusalem, largely conducted by Saul of Tarsus, um, the Christians, the believers in Jerusalem fled for the most part. And Philip was one of them. And he went to Samaria. And we're told there that while he was there preaching uh, preaching the gospel, that there were many who came to believe. Even a very notable, kind of a celebrity figure, religiously speaking, in Samaria, a man by the name of Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. And when he saw the miracles that were performed by Philip, he was amazed. And he recognized in Philip the real deal. It may have been, and I've made the case before, that it was probably the case, though I can't, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, that what Philip was doing was sleight-of-hand trickery, trying to make people believe he had these supernatural powers. Um, and maybe through collusion with uh, demonic forces, maybe he really could do some things that are uh, beyond what human beings can do. But in any case, he sees the real deal in Philip. These are bona fide miracles that nobody can dispute. And so he comes to believe, and he is baptized. Uh, So now we come uh, to the text for the day, which we have just read from verses 14 through 25. And the, um, it says, when the, gospel, or when, the, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, some commentators here are very puzzled about why the ministry of the apostles was necessary for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. But two reasons, it seems to me, present themselves. And the first is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ is proceeding in an orderly fashion. He's proceeding in an orderly fashion. Again, the question is, why didn't, when Philip was preaching the gospel to them, why wasn't it under his ministry that the Holy Spirit fell upon the Samaritans? And why was it that it was necessary for the apostles Peter and John Uh, to to be there for them to receive it. Again, because Jesus is proceeding in an orderly fashion. The apostles are the specially chosen instruments to lay the foundation of the church. We find in Ephesians, Paul talks about how the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the work that God is doing with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. But that God has given revelation to the apostles and prophets, the revelation of the mystery of the gospel as it is being preached. And in this first generation, we find the apostles playing this foundational role. And so uh, the apostles are Christ's instruments to perform this work. And when you think about it and the complicated history between the Jews and their beliefs at that time and in relationship to the Samaritans, this makes perfect sense. 
um, the genuineness of the Samaritans' faith and their full incorporation into the church um, would now be attested to by the eyewitness of the apostles. The apostles go and check it out. And they come back and they verify that what they had seen is a genuine work of God. Because the Jews would have been very reluctant. Most of the Jews in Jerusalem would have been very reluctant to believe that God has accepted Samaritans? What are you telling me? This surely cannot be the case. No way. Messiah is for Israel, not for these stinking Samaritans. If they want to receive the Messiah, if they want to have a share in Israel's Messiah, then let them become Jews. Let them be circumcised. Let them be, you know, become Jews in all the ordinary ways that we reckon Judaism to exist. Um, this is the same controversy that will erupt later when the Gentiles come to believe. The, the Jews, the, the, and I'm talking about Jewish Christians, they're in utter disbelief. No way. Gentiles? There's no way they can become Christians without first becoming Jews. Right? That was the whole issue about circumcision that we'll read later. That um, once the gospel went to the Gentiles, there was a significant part of the, of the Hebraic Christian church that said, Oh, they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. This is great. Now let's circumcise them. Let's teach them to keep kosher. Let's teach them to offer sacrifice. In essence, let's make sure that they become Jews because Israel's Messiah is for Israel. So let's bring them um, into Israel by causing them to live like Jews. That was, that was the big issue. Um, we see something of this. We'll just kind of anticipate a little bit into chapter 10. We see this very clearly with, uh, in the case of the Gentiles, but I think the same thing is going on with the Samaritans. In uh, Acts chapter 10, this is where uh, Peter is divinely called, unmistakably through visions, um, repeated three times to go to the household of Cornelius, a Gentile. And Peter has to have this done three times in order to persuade him that it's really God who's calling him to do this. Because the teaching of the Jews at the time was, you don't step foot into a Gentile household. You become unclean by having too close a contact with a Gentile. And here, you know, Peter is thinking, God, you're calling me to go here. But yes, God is calling him to do this. God teaches him not to call any man unclean. And so he goes to the household of Cornelius. He steps into his house. And the first thing he says um, after the basic introduction and welcome by Cornelius in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly understand that God shows no partiality between Jew or Gentile, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Was with him. And he goes on and, and tells more about the work of Christ and how he was crucified and, and raised again. In verse 44, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from the circumcised... Right, the believers from the circumcised, well, Peter was circumcised. Why, it almost sounds like this is somebody other than a group, a group other than that which includes Peter. It's talking about those who are insisting and who are emphasizing that 
that you must be a Jew in order to receive the saving benefits of the Messiah. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. They were amazed by this because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, all people. They can't believe it. You you can't really grasp the significance of what's going on here unless you understand some of the religious prejudice that's going on here. Now, part of it is very natural to understand because God had trained them to think in terms of them being the chosen people of God. But they failed to understand that they were the chosen people of God to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. It wasn't, you know, God bless us and us four no more kind of thing, bless Israel and nobody else, but it was God bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. Isn't that what God first told Abraham? That I will bless you and through you, you your, your, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And, but they had gotten into this mentality that we are the chosen people of God and so all of his blessings terminate upon Israel. And so it was inconceivable to them that these blessings could be poured out to somebody who was not of Israel, upon a Gentile of all people. Now, if he would become a proselyte, if he would become a Jew by conversion, religious conversion, then we can expect the blessings of Messiah, but not as a Gentile. But here the Holy Spirit falls upon them, even as a Gentile. And then it goes on to explain how it is that they know that the Holy Spirit fell upon them. It wasn't just uh, some hunch that they had. There were real observable phenomena that was going on that convinced them, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of, the, uh, of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, after this, Peter goes back to Jerusalem. And in chapter 11, it says in verse 15, Well, let me, yeah. let me summarize what happens previous to this. He comes back to Jerusalem, and the, those of the circumcision party said, what were you doing in the house of a Gentile? And what, what were you doing with such close contact with them? And assuming that they stand on an equal footing as we do. And, and he, goes, he goes to recount what happened. In verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as Gentiles, without becoming proselytes, that is, without becoming Jews, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. All right? So it's clear to see that this is what's going on um, with the Gentiles. It required the apostles' testimony to the fact that God has indeed poured out the Spirit upon the Gentiles for the larger church to accept the fact that God was accepting them as Gentiles without becoming Jews first. And I believe this is the same thing that's going on with respect to the Samaritans in chapter 8. Philip preaches... They believe their faith is genuine. They are truly accounted by God as being saved and forgiven and delivered of their sins. They are baptized. But then the apostles go to check it out. 
They have heard the report, but who in the world would believe that God would do this for Samaritans? We better send, better send some apostles to figure out what's really going on here. And when they go down, uh, they're then able uh, to testify to the grace of God among the Samaritans. And, <clears throat> and now notice also what this would do, or think about what this would do for the Samaritans as well. Do you remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman at the well? When she asked the question, well, you know, I perceive that you're a prophet, now tell me. Um, you know, your people say that Jerusalem is a place we're supposed to worship. Our fathers worship in this mountain. You know, she has these religious questions. Who, who's right in all of this? And eventually it comes down to this. Jesus says, listen, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Right? So now, here are the Samaritans. They receive the gospel from a Jew, Philip. This Jew, Philip, works miracles among them. Many get healed. Many are delivered from demonic oppression. And then there's uh, this Jewish Messiah that he's preaching. And then there are these two men, Peter and John, who come from Jerusalem of all places. No, not Mount Gerizim, not from the Samaritan priesthood, but from Jerusalem. More Jews. There's Jews everywhere here. It's, it's, God is making the point that salvation is from the Jews. He's impressing this upon the Samaritans to kind of correct them, I think, in a, in a manner of speaking, of their errant view of their history and their claim uh, to be the chosen people of God. And so God, Jesus, is, is, is progressing in an orderly fashion. And we see, in addition to this, another consideration that Jesus had given the apostles the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And, and uh, we find Peter principally among them who takes a prominent role in this. Um, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, which means a rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, we believe the Roman Catholic Church takes that out of context and gives a, an ongoing power to um, or attributes a power to Peter that was ongoing through the successors of the Bishop of Rome for all time, which we don't believe. But there is nevertheless sufficient biblical warrant to say Jesus had a special place for Peter in playing a key role in laying the foundation of the church. Who was it on the day of Pentecost who preached to the assembled crowds of Jews, which God blessed so magnificently by bringing 3,000 people into the fold? It was Peter. Um, who is here at the time when the Samaritans received the gospel and received the Holy Spirit and bears witness to the other larger portion of the church that, yes, indeed, the Samaritans have been accepted by God. We've seen the evidence of it because the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them. It's Peter. Who is it that first preaches to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10? It's Peter. Peter takes the role. He's the one whom God is using principally. He's using all of the apostles, but principally at each new stage of development in the progress of the gospel, it is Peter. I believe this is what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 16 when he says, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. I don't believe it means what Rome says it means, but that in his sovereign purposes for Peter, he was used in this way. He was using the keys of the kingdom of heaven, if you will, by the proclamation of the gospel and opening the doors of the kingdom of heaven to all who would believe in the Jesus whom he preached. And he was the key and principal player in that with each stage of development. Does that make sense? That doesn't sound too far-fetched, I hope. Okay. 
Well, in verse 18, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, it's interesting that the purchase of an office in the church to this day is referred to as the practice of simony. Have you ever heard that word? Simony. Um, unless you're a church historian, you may not have heard of it. Uh, but simony is the, the practice of seeking to purchase a church office. For some sum of money, you would be appointed or ordained to an office. And it derives from this instance in Acts chapter 8. And uh, Peter's answer here to Simon, to Simon is a very forceful rebuke. In fact, it would be harder to... Think of a more forceful rebuke. In essence, it is, you and your money be damned. May your silver perish with you. May you and your silver, may you and your money both perish. And when you think about it, I mean, what Simon, the the, the assumptions that Simon was making um, were, were extraordinarily evil. To think that God would, would give the power to grant spiritual benefits by way of purchase um, is so repugnant to the idea of a holy God that Simon deserved a rebuke such as this. And, and Peter warned him, in, in, in a sense, you, you are insulting God and you better repent or God is going to take you out. You know, your, your silver perish with you. And this apparently struck a chord with him because he said, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, some people believe that he sincerely repented here and was reconciled to God. Um, There is, however, some significant testimony in the early church that he did not, that this was an insincere expression. Numerous church fathers speak of Simon as being an early heretic and who led many people away from Christ. Now, there are a number of stories about him that are rather fanciful and probably not true, but a number of others that seem to be pretty substantial and pretty credible that suggest that he uh, attempted to subvert the Christian faith for his own purposes, that he adopted some of his previous um, teaching and adapted it to uh, the message of Christ um, to gain a following for himself and to gain influence, power, and wealth. And we don't know all that's, uh, all that's fact and all that's fiction and what the church fathers have to say about him. Um, but notice then in verse 25, it says, When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned, that is Peter and John, returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So now it's not just in the city of Samaria itself, but as they're on their way back, seeing what God had done and how he had poured out his grace and his Holy Spirit upon uh, the Samaritans in the capital city, they take encouragement by this to preach the gospel in other places as well among the Samaritans, many of the villages, it says. And I believe that what we read here in this chapter about the Lord sending the gospel to the Samaritans and working miracles among them and pouring out his Holy Spirit on them, all of these things we might view as a continuation of Jesus' ministry 
among the Samaritans in John chapter 4. Um, we spent some time on that um, not too long ago when we were looking at the earlier part of this chapter. But you recall that, that she, well, let's just take a, a, a brief look at a few verses there. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 35, I believe. <clears throat> and, and you recall at, <clears throat> in this episode as well that the apostles, the disciples, are amazed that Jesus is talking of all people, to a Samaritan woman. They arrive in Samaria, and they're weary from their journey. They stop at a well, get a drink, and Jesus tells them to go into the city and buy some food. And this uh, woman comes out and begins to engage him in conversation, and the disciples come back, finding him talking with her, and they're surprised that he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a Samaritan woman, at that, and there were certain taboos among the Jews to have too familiar uh, of a conversation um, with a woman. But Jesus flouts all of that uh, standard Jewish convention, and in some cases superstition, and he ministers to her, and he reveals things to her about herself that only a prophet would know. And so he immediately gets to her heart, and then she comes to believe and testifies on his behalf in the city. But prior to that, Verse 35, he's speaking to his disciples, and he says, Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? And I think that what he's referring to here specifically is that particular agricultural cycle. The crops are in the field, they're growing, it's four months until harvest. And then he transitions, he uses that to speak of a spiritual harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And where is he? He's, he's in Samaria. And he's indicating that there is a ripe field for, the, for a spiritual harvest right here in Samaria. I'm telling you, he says, it, it is here. It's white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And then notice in verse 39, many Samaritans came from the town, from that town, um, I'm sorry, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And I've always thought, Lord, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what happened during those two days? How many people came to believe? What miracles Jesus might have performed there? What was their response to him? He stayed there two more days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, this is very remarkable because for the most part, Jesus confined his ministry to the Jewish people within the geographical limits of the borders of Israel. But here he is in Samaria, which historically was within the borders of Israel, but now was uh, inhabited by Samaritans, and a typical Jew would not even pass through Samaria. They would go outside and around its borders by, when going from Judea to Galilee or from Galilee to Judea rather than going just a straight line through. 
But here Jesus goes straight through Samaria. He's, he's on a mission. He has an appointment to speak to this particular woman at this particular time, and it's going to be an inroad and a prelude to a greater harvest to come. And that greater harvest to come is in Acts chapter 8, where we find Philip first and then later Peter and John ministering among the Samaritans. Now, all of this, I would suggest to you, may be thought of as an instance of the faithfulness of God to his people. The Samaritans were the mixed descendants of Abraham, as we have mentioned, yet still they were his descendants. And although their version of Judaism was deficient, God was nevertheless gracious and merciful. And after bringing the gospel to the Jews... And before taking it to the Gentiles, he goes to the Samaritans, those who are close, most closely related to the Jews. And then finally, of course, the gospel will go to the Gentiles. Such is the grace of God, such is his mercy and his overflowing goodness, that, that what he promises to Israel, he intends ultimately to spill over. You can't contain the grace of God. He intends for it to, be, to, to spill over until it reaches every corner of the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, how we thank you that this grace that you promised to Abraham and his descendants after him has gone to the farthest reaches of the earth. So even we here in Pratt, Kansas, we who have no ethnic or other tie to Abraham um, are tied to him through the work of Jesus Christ and the blessings you have promised to him through Christ spill over onto us. And Father, we are thankful for that. And we pray, Lord, that your mercy and grace would be poured out even uh, further still. For we know that there are numerous small pockets of people and tribes um, and groups around the world who have yet to hear a faithful and true account of the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that this word, this gracious word of the gospel would go forth to them as well. And Lord, what part we might play in it, would you show us? We thank you for the part that we have in supporting foreign missions in um, various countries. And we pray, Father, that they would be effective, that you would be pleased to use them, even as you used Philip, Father, to take the gospel to a people who had never heard of it. And many might come to believe. We look forward to the day, as we're assured in the prophets, a day that's coming when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Make it so, we pray, our Father. 